There were two women that Sunday morning, before sunrise, on the dusty road, walking toward the tomb. They'd seen it all. They'd seen everything that had happened, so I imagine on the way they talked about it and remembered what they had seen. One said, Mary, do you remember just last Sunday? Just last Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem. He was on that colt and and the city was whipped into a frenzy. They were all praising him. Hosanna, help us, save us, son of David. They were taking their cloaks off and throwing them in front of him to show honor to him and cutting branches off the trees and laying them in front of him. They were all celebrating our Lord. The other one said, Mary, but then you remember just a few days ago in the courtyard when our Lord was tied to that post and they scourged him. Then they mocked him and put that robe on him and put that crown of thorns on his head. And I'm sure as those memories flooded back, they both began to cry. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, had even been there at Golgotha. They watched the crucifixion. They saw that old rugged cross waiting for their Lord. They saw him when he was hung upon it and watched him get weaker and weaker. They watched his breath come harder and harder. They watched the crowd abuse him. They heard him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They remembered how his head finally fell forward. One probably said to the other, I think I heard him say, It is finished. But they'd seen him die. And they'd died too. Well, not physically. But everything they had that was worth living for was dead. He was their hope. He was their Lord. He was their friend. He was all they had in life. And they'd put all their trust in him. And now he had died, so their hope died. And what they were doing was just what we do when someone dies. It's not pleasant. We don't want to go to the funeral home and make the arrangements and take care of things. But when we love someone and we're devoted to them, that's what we do. It's a sad time. We don't go joyfully. We walk pretty slowly through all of those steps. And that's what these two women were doing. They loved him. They were devoted to him. And so they had to take care of what had to be taken care of. So they got up early that morning before the sun came up. And they went to prepare his body because it hadn't been done yet. He was taken off the cross right before sundown on Friday before the Sabbath started. And nobody had time to do the preparations. I imagine that these two Marys followed Joseph of Arimathea out to the tomb so they'd know where it was, so they could do this on Sunday morning. And now they had gotten themselves out of bed and picked up the huge load of spices that they needed. They had brought some other things. I'm sure they had a jar of water, some towels, because they had some things to clean up. 
They were the ones that were going to have to wipe the crusted blood off of his brow. Off of his face and in his hair and in his beard and down his arms and on his hands and down his legs and on his feet. Before they put the spices on him. And as they walked, one Mary said to the other, Mary, I just thought of something. How are we going to get in? They put a stone in front of the tomb. The soldiers are there guarding it. They don't want anybody close to it. How are we even going to get in? And the passage that was read for you earlier said there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And then the women got there, and the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen. Just as he said, come, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead. He's not here. He is risen. The, the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we're here. You understand that's the only reason we're here? I know we know all about the cross, and we know about the, the sacrifice, and we understand all that. But without the resurrection, all of that means not much. Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You're to be pitied. You've got nothing as Christians. If Christ hasn't been raised. But he has. That's the bedrock. That's the the foundation. That's what settles everything. And that's why so many people attack it. That's why so many people try to disprove it. Try to come up with some other reason. In fact, that very day, the story started. Matthew explains that down in verse 11. He says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say his disciples came during the night. They stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. They were the first to come up with an excuse for the resurrection, but they weren't the last. But it's still a problem for those that don't want to believe it because they can't explain it. No theory works. The only theory that even gets close involves the disciples being in on the cover-up. And that just doesn't work because when you start to get martyred, you stop covering up a lie. You would tell it's a lie if they were ready to crucify you. But the apostles died martyrs' deaths. They went to their graves saying, no, he is alive. That's the best proof, but we can look at history and see other reasons to believe the resurrection. 
No one ever produced the body. That would have been the easiest answer. The Romans thought he had been stolen. They would have hunted it down and produced the body. That would have ended the whole thing. But they didn't. Worship. Understand this. Worship, for, for some reason, changed from Saturday to Sunday. Why'd that happen if the tomb really wasn't empty? The calendar changed. The, the entire way of keeping time changed because of what happened that Sunday, because of who he was. There were over 500 eyewitnesses that saw him. I read once that if you got all of those witnesses together and interviewed them for 15 minutes each, if we started right now and went 24 hours a day, we'd finish on Friday. That many witnesses saying, yeah, I saw him. Yeah, I talked to him. I heard him. With different degrees of stories, but that many eyewitnesses. Jesus is alive, but whether we know that or not in the story, the important part is that the two Marys knew it. They went into the tomb. I'd like to know if they stayed there very long. I'd like to know what they thought about, what they talked about when they were in there. Did they look at the linen cloth that Jesus had folded and left there? Did they they talk about other memories that they had? Did they just hug each other and shed tears of joy? I don't know what they did in there, but I do know what happened when they left. Matthew records it this way. He said, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. You notice the difference. They walked in slowly. They shuffled to the tomb and they leaped away. They walked in and they ran away. The whole lot of things change when you come to the empty tomb. And their life changed. Their whole outlook changed. What they had been going to do was just what had to be done. Just a duty to be gotten through. It was a terrible day. It was a horrible day. But when they found out that Jesus was alive, all of a sudden the day turned into one of joy, inexpressible joy. And their march changed from shuffles to leaps full of hope. And they ran to tell the other disciples. You, you see, they knew something about death now. They knew a brand new secret about death that changed the world. And they knew something about forgiveness, too, because this made everything that Jesus talked about make sense. They hadn't really understood it before, but now everything was coming into focus. The forgiveness part of it, all of them began to learn that, that the two Marys maybe didn't think about that much. But you know who they went to first? Peter and John. They found Peter and John first. And Peter <laughs> had a reason to be interested in the story about Jesus being alive. Because Peter had spent the last few days in total despair. Because he had denied his Lord. That's the last thing he had done. That's the last time he had seen him. It was when Jesus looked at him after the cock crowed and Peter realized he had denied him three times. 
And now they heard this news and it says they took off at the speed of light. Well, it says they ran as fast as they could. But it probably seemed like the speed of light. And we learned that John was faster than Peter. John got there first. But he didn't go in for some reason. I don't know if he was waiting for Peter or what, but he, he stopped there and Peter didn't stop at all. That sounds like Peter. He just charged right in. He charged into the tomb. He saw that linen that Jesus had folded and left there. He saw the empty bench. And he knew what it meant. But it meant more to him than just something about death now, a secret about death. It meant also a chance for forgiveness. Now maybe he could find Jesus. Maybe he could tell Jesus that he was sorry for what he had done. He didn't have a chance to before. And Jesus knew that too. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he makes a point of saying, Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. He went to Peter first. I don't know where he found him. The Bible doesn't tell us that. I like to think he was out by the Jordan River or somewhere just sitting by himself with his head down thinking about what he was going to say if he really did get to see Jesus. I like to imagine all of a sudden he felt a hand on his shoulder. I like to imagine he looked over at it and saw that it was a pierced hand. Then that hand patted him on the back and said, it's all right, Peter. It's all right. I forgive you. I don't think Peter said much. I don't think he could say much. He may have fallen to his knees in worship. I, I don't know what he did. But when Jesus told him it was all right and that he was forgiven, Peter learned something about the open tomb. You see, all of that comes from the resurrection. We know something about death and life after death. We know something about forgiveness. We understand how sins can be washed away. Because God said, I approve of his sacrifice when he brought him back to life. It means that Jesus won. He won the battle over death and over the sin and over the grave. It makes what the old prophet said make sense. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought, uh, brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That makes sense after we find the empty tomb. Peter put all of this together, and just a few weeks later, he was standing in Jerusalem. Huge crowd of people. The people that had crucified Jesus. And Peter told them who Jesus was. That's what his sermon was all about. He said, Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. And when you understand that, when you figure that out, you've got to respond some way. And the way the crowd responded was, well, what do we do? What should we do about that now? And Peter told them very clearly, repent and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, so that your sins can be forgiven. Peter understood the whole process now. He began to tell everybody that until he was martyred because of his belief. 
You see, when we understand all that, it changes how we walk, I guess. I don't know how you came in here. You may have come shuffling in here because it was a duty that you had to do. You might not believe in Jesus at all. You might be a believer that's shuffling kind of slowly because your Christian walk has been kind of embarrassing. I don't know how you shuffled in here. But if you understand the message of the tomb, of the empty tomb, you can leave leaping with joy. You can run away like the women did. He's alive. There's forgiveness. There is victory over death. All of that comes becomes crystal clear. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a song that talks that we can sing with joy. It's, I know my Redeemer lives. That's the answer we're here. But before we sing it, I want to tell you just one more story about the Rendells who lived in Ohio. He's a minister of the church. He's a brother in Christ. Wally's his name and Barbara's hers. A few years ago, they got a call, a phone call that no parent ever wants to get. It was an Ohio State trooper that told them there had been a crash, that their 21-year-old daughter who played college basketball, the van with the team in it had turned over and their daughter Jill had died in the wreck. Jill was... A special daughter. She was vivacious. She was on the dean's list. She was popular. They had just voted her the homecoming queen. She was a daddy's girl. Just a week before, she had visited home from college and had sat on daddy's lap for an hour just joking around with him. So they were devastated. The Rendells, uh, no worse news a parent can get. But because of their faith, because of what they believe that we've been talking about today, within just a few minutes, Wally said through tears, well, the queen has gone home to be with the king. That's what Paul was talking about. There's something different about how Christians grieve. Uh, We who understand the story of the tomb, who understand all that, grieve, but we grieve differently. Not as those who have no hope. The funeral for Jill was packed. There were over a thousand people there. It was a little different funeral, for I'm sure, for some of the community, because usually funerals are kind of sad and kind of slow and like a dirge of some sort. But this one was a celebration. This was a celebration of Jill's homegoing. Toward the end of the service, a young man sang a solo, a song that some of you have heard. It starts, I fell on, it's called, I fell on my knees and cried glory. The song says, I dreamed of a city called glory, so bright and so fair. When I entered the gates, I cried holy. The angels all met me there. They carried me from mansion to mansion. Oh, the sights that I saw. Then I said, I want to see Jesus, for he's the one who died for all. The second time that the young man sang the song, and the second time that he sang, I want to see Jesus, 
Wally and Barbara were sitting right down front, just within reach of the casket. And they both stood up and raised their hands to heaven. The entire crowd rose with them. They praised God for what they knew, what they believed. A thousand people stood with them spontaneously. When the song was over, one of their good friends got up to close the service. He read a poem that he said were Jill's words or would have been Jill's words. It said, Grieve not for me, nor let one small tear fall. What you dream of, I can see. And I'm telling you, it's worth it all. All thousand people broke into applause. Because he lives. We can believe the risen Christ when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Because I live, you also will live. If you need to respond to that risen Christ in any way this morning, come, let's stand and sing.